Good morning, everybody. When we consider any part of the scriptures, we have to consider the context in which it was written. And it is in no place more necessary than when we read the book of Revelation. To us, living in the 21st century, much of it seems incomprehensible. And the only way to get a grip on it is to try and put ourselves in the place of the first readers. John is writing to the first century churches in what we now call Turkey. He uses the language and imagery of that time. The visions that are recorded are not necessarily in a chronological order. There's number symbols. There's things like beasts and dragons and horses. And then there's events that mean little to us and mean, leave us puzzled. The congregations that John was talking to would have been likely to have been predominantly Gentile, but their understanding would have been based on what we now call the Old Testament and what they'd heard about Jesus and a few writings about him. So to understand the book of Revelation, we need to look for clues not so much in the New Testament, but which hadn't been collated at that time, but in the Old Testament, which was available to them in scrolls. Imagine you're watching a film about a man called Fred. He's standing in front of the minister at church and he turns as the organist begins to play Mendelssohn's Wedding March. The scene fades and you see a little boy building a sandcastle. You immediately know who the little boy is. You don't know the relevance to the scene being shown, but you know if you keep listening and watching, you eventually will. To use modern expressions, the book of Revelation that John wrote uses flashbacks or side stories, just like our imagined film. So while some of the parts are chronological, you've then got interludes or side stories that give us more background or information about a person or event. Chapter 15 that Trudy has just read to us is one of these interludes. We have learned in previous chapters that the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments. Now we're going to learn about the seven bowl judgments. But first, there is a pause. And John shows us the preparations that are being made in heaven. So let's try and unpack and understand more the chapter. And in doing so, 
we'll learn just how important it is for us to be familiar with the Old Testament and how we need those older writings to understand the first century Christianity and the relevance to us today. So in verse 1, we see the vision of judgment. I think our, we've got our a bit, bit out of sync. We should be on the vision of judgment. Thank you. John saw seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last because with them, God's wrath is completed. People have had their choice and have chosen Satan over God. I wonder if you were like I was with my children. If they were naughty, they were told to behave themselves with an, sometimes an explanation of why they were doing wrong. If they continued to be naughty, they were reminded of the consequences. So I would say, if you continue to do that, you will. And I would add an inappropriate punishment. If they did continue, then the punishment was handed out. It was too late to just say, sorry, mummy. Their bad behavior had a consequence and they had to pay the penalty. I never realized I was following a, a biblical principle, but God had made the seven seal judgments and the seven trumpet judgments. And in each case, those judgments had been given to, a, to people with a chance to repent. You'll recall, for example, in chapter eight, it said a third of the world was burnt up, but two thirds remained safe. God showed his mercy and love for humanity. But this time, people had made their last choice. They had been given their chances. Now they would pay the penalty. Yet from ancient times, humanity has had a warning about the penalty for sin. Although Leviticus, in its written form, dates from somewhere between 538 and 332 BC, its oral tradition goes back to the days of Moses, around about three and a half thousand years ago. In Leviticus 26, 21, we can read, if you walk in hostility towards me and refuse to obey me, I will multiply your plagues seven times according to your sins. Humanity was warned and has had plenty of time to turn to God. Now the penalty will be paid. Verses two to four show us a vision of jubilation. John shares a picture of heaven as it prepares for God's final judgment. A sea of glass glowing with fire 
and standing beside it, there are those who had been victorious against the beast. They're the tribulation martyrs described in Revelation 7. In Revelation 4, John gave us a picture of God on his throne in heaven and said how in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. The sea of glass was designed to reflect God's glory. But here, God, John adds the little detail of fire. Maybe it was to suggest God's divine judgment. These martyrs are standing beside the sea of glass, praising God, just as the Israelites stood on the banks of the Red Sea. In Exodus 15, it records the song of Moses and Miriam. It's the first recorded song in the Bible, and it's a song of deliverance against the, the Egyptians. In Revelations 15, it's a song of deliverance from evil. And it happens to be the last song in the Bible. And this song in Revelation is made up from lots of quotes in the Old Testament, including from the Psalms. So there's Psalm 111, 139, and 145. Maybe your prayers are like so many of mine, based round me. I want, I need, please God. How much better my relationship with God would be if I made a, that these verses a focus instead. God's work, great and marvellous are your deeds. God's ways, just and true are your ways. God's worthiness, who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name, for you alone are holy. God's worship, all nations will come and worship before you. God's judgment for your righteous acts have been revealed. We can take these verses and we can pray them exactly as they are. Or we can personalise them. Praise God for what he has done in our lives. Acknowledge that his way is far better than some of the decisions we've made. Praise and thank him that through his son we can come to his throne without fear. But when I read those verses again, I had one problem. It was the last bit. 
God's righteous acts. They include judgment. Judgment is all right if it falls on others you don't know. But what if it's my unbelieving family? Who is then they are receiving God's ultimate judgment. Am I really meant to praise God then? I decided to take an imaginary road trip from Whangarei Heads to town to explore this idea about how I might feel. It's a road I know very well because I used to live out that way. But if you don't know it, just imagine any of our country roads that twist and turn and can occasionally get very busy. Here I was in my imagination. It was 7.55 on a Friday morning and I had an appointment in town at 8.30. Plenty of time except three cars in head of me, there was somebody who thought they were out for a Sunday afternoon jaunt in the country. On the heads road, there's only about three places to overtake. And we'd passed two of them, and the next one was nearly in Onorahi. So it was gonna be a long, slow trip to town. Then up behind us came another car, and the driver was determined to get into town by 8.20. He swerved from side to side. He couldn't get by, but he did. He nearly took out a delivery truck, but he got by, and then he swerved some more, and eventually, he swerved past the car behind me. I don't know what he could see because we were on a blind bend and I couldn't see anything and I was in front, but not for long. He swerved round me, swerved past the others and he was gone. But then we got to just out on the side of Onorahi and there on the side of the road was a car we all recognised. And behind him there was a car with blue flashing light. And by his window there was a policeman writing a nice little ticket. Imagine how I felt. The driver had got his just desserts. He deserved the book thrown at him. Then I imagined that I recognised the driver and it was my nephew who I taught to drive. And I hoped he would just get off with a warning. After all, he was only young and he was a good kid, really. He didn't deserve the book thrown at him, did he? Did the martyrs view the world about to be destroyed like this? Did they see it 
like I saw the driver, with mixed thoughts and mixed standards. I don't believe they did. I think they were totally focused on God. Let me read you those verses again and notice the words, you and your. How great and wonderful are your deeds, King of the nations. How right and true are your ways. Who will not fear you, Lord? Who will refuse to declare your greatness? You alone are holy. All the nations will come and worship you because your just actions are seen by all. Their focus was totally on the attributes of God and that included his rightness to judge. But the truly humbling part of my little story is the realization that I could so easily have been the driver weaving in and out of the traffic and now paying the penalty. The only thing that is stopping me from paying for my sins is that when I turned to Jesus, he paid my penalty by his death on a cross. I was no more deserving than anyone else. All I did was say yes when he reached out his hand and said, come. One day, I hope to be as focused on God as these martyrs. In the meantime, I'll accept I'm a work in progress and I will praise God how and when I can and try to praise him for the things that I barely understand, accepting that he knows best in all circumstances. Verses five to eight bring us to a vision of justice. These last verses show us the final preparations in heaven before the bowls of God's wrath are poured out on the earth. John describes how the temple, the tabernacle of the covenant of the law was opened and out of it came seven angels. There's a tendency amongst Christians to think that the tabernacle is no longer relevant and that the old covenant of the law was superseded by Jesus. But if that's the case, why do we see it here in the New Testament? Quite simply, because Jesus did not come to rewrite the law, but to fulfill it. A covenant is a legal agreement between two parties. The covenant of the law was an outline to show the Israelites the type of life expected of them as God's holy people. And in return, God would fulfill his side as he would be their God 
and never abandon them. The law is sometimes referred to just the Ten Commandments, probably more often to the first five books of the Bible. But sometimes it is the whole of the Old Testament. Through Christ, Gentiles have been brought into the covenant with God. It is as relevant to us today as to any Jew who has lived at any time. The fact that it is shown to us in the New Testament in John's Revelation shows us it's still relevant to us here today in Whangarei. God's wrath had been building ever since evil came into the world. Humanity has been given chance after chance to announce to renounce evil, yet there are still theirs who reject him. And the time has come now for absolute judgment. The angels leave the temple and are past seven bowls filled with the wrath of God. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God, and no one could enter until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Again, we look at the Old Testament and see a similar picture on other occasions. In Exodus 40, we read, the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the clouds settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And in 1 Kings 8, And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of the Lord. So we can see John was sharing an image of the heavenly temple that his listeners would have been familiar with. The tabernacle, as described in Exodus 25, was constructed following God's instruction to be like the one in heavenly realms. In Old Testament times, the only ones who could approach the tabernacle were Moses, then the priests. It was they who were the ones who directly communicated with God. But all that changed as Jesus gave up his life for us on the cross. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was rent from top to bottom, giving us, through Jesus, direct access with God. But in this account of John, we see that the doors of the tabernacle were closed, and access was cut off while the bowls of wrath were emptied over earth. It shows us clearly that at this time there were no chances left for the rebellious, sinful people on left on earth. It was too late to repent. 
access to God had been stopped. Justice will be done. See the parallel to how I discipline my children? A point came when a sorry wasn't enough. There was a consequence to bad behaviour. Today, I focused very much on the links between Revelation 15 and the Old Testament, of which I've mentioned only a few of them, and there's many, many references. But Jesus also gave us pictures of the end times. And this story he told is a picture of what we have looked at today. It comes from Matthew 25, verse 1 to 13. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out and meet him. Then all the virgins woke and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some yourself. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. The sad truth is that some people, not necessarily bad people, but certainly foolish ones, will not be ready for Christ's return. They will leave repentance for another day, or next week, or next year, until one day, they'll find out that they have left it too late. They will find that God has shut the doors of heaven to them. They will pay the penalty of not being able to attend the wedding banquet. Jesus instructed us to go out into all the world and make disciples. We have a responsibility to tell others about the good news of Jesus Christ, to pray for them, 
to give them every opportunity to know Jesus. But this parable clearly shows us we're not to put ourselves in a place of risk to save them. It is ultimately their choice and their responsibility to accept Christ as their saviour. This parable also clearly tells us we have a responsibility to ourselves to not only know about the banquet, but to be ready to attend it when the bridegroom arrives. If you know about Jesus, but have never said yes to him, or if you feel that your oil supply is running a bit low, and that your focus on God has dimmed and you can't remember when you really last felt like praising him, I do encourage you at the end of the service to either come to the front of the church where there will be people who will love to pray with you, or turn to the person next to you and ask them to pray with you. Thank you.